ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. My co-host, Dr. Michael Greenberg, is on assignment this week, a.k.a. he's sipping Mai Tais in Hawaii. So I'm bringing in the top brass for this show. Sitting across from me today is ReachMD CEO Gary Epstein. Hey, hey, Dr. Matt. Happy to be here. Really fun to fill in for Dr. Greenberg. Absolutely. And great to have you with us today, Gary. We've got a great show in store for everybody today. We do. We'll be talking to Robert Eggy, VP of Policy and Advocacy for the Alzheimer's Association, about the National Alzheimer's Project Act. This is a policy that has been three and a half years in the making, the culmination of a lot of work. Actually, more than 50,000 emails, thousand. Matt. Yep, yeah. 10,000 phone calls and at least 1,000 meetings went into getting this legislation passed and signed by the president. We'll find out a lot more about what it means for Alzheimer's research. All right. And a little later in the show, we'll bring you an on-the-ground update from Haiti a year after the devastating earthquake in that country with Dr. Anthony Alessi, second opinion correspondent and host of ReachMD's NeuroFrontiers show. Dr. Alessi has made several trips to Haiti in the last year, And he'll be reporting on the continuing health and social challenges for the Haitian people in 2011. All that coming up on Second Opinion Live. But first, let's look at some of the latest headlines from the world of medicine. Gary, what is up first today? Well, Matt, there's actually been a lot of speculation about direct-to-consumer genetic testing since it actually started hitting the market in around 2007. In fact, some people think giving patients genetic risk information is a good way to empower them. About their own health. Yeah, about their own health and encourage them to take better care of themselves. In fact, others on the other side of the argument think that having the results of genetic testing will frankly just raise the patient's fears about their health and leading really to a lot of increased testing and on all sorts of diseases and ultimately an extension of inflating the, you know, already rising healthcare costs. (laughs) Absolutely. So if you fast forward to 2011, you know, there's now this new study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which indicates that for better or worse, neither of these outcomes have kind of panned out. Well, that's interesting. You know, and we should recap for the audience that the study was funded by Scripps Health in San Diego and the National Institutes of Health. There were over 3,500 subjects that were recruited directly from San Diego area health and technology companies. And I find that interesting, health and technology yes. companies, you know, pretty much direct recruiting. The subjects purchased genetic test kits at discounted rates and sent in swabs of saliva DNA for testing. I'm amazed they didn't get it for free. A few <laughs> weeks later, they received risk profiles for developing cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, glaucoma, obesity, about 20 conditions in all. And an important note here is that the study didn't care about whether or not those profiles were accurate, which everybody knows is a source of major controversy. No, actually, their focus was strictly on anxiety levels and follow-up care among the subjects five months after their genetic test results came in. And this was documented by survey. And the survey says... Well, not much. Oh. Over 90% of the subjects reported no increase in anxiety after five months of receiving their test results. In fact, many people said they would increase their screenings, change their eating habits, and modify their exercise levels. But guess what? What? Five months later, that hasn't happened yet. (laughs) 
So there are questions, Matt, about you know whether these tests will actually impact patient care and raise healthcare costs down the road. It's a huge question. Yeah. Consistently, uh, when you get into this kind of predictive testing, I think you find the whole question about whether this is going to increase or decrease healthcare costs coming up. It looks like it's a big question here. And what they're saying about the study is that the testing pool doesn't reflect the wider population. But I think a few of us don't really want to find out because that's going to be a nasty, uncovered situation. And uh, did you know that actually one company almost got its test onto Walgreens shelves before the FDA stepped in? I don't know, Gary. I think it's coming. I think it's just a matter of time. I think so, too, Matt. (laughs) All right. For our last story, I'm going to call this a good news, bad news situation. Now, Scientific American is reporting an uptick in organ donation, which is good news. But they say the reason is not so great that the recession is forcing people to think about more cost-effective funeral arrangements after they die. Yeah, this is a little creepy. But I think the reality probably is the economy is impacting what's going on here. Um, The Banner Sun Health Research Institute in Phoenix, which uses donated tissue to study diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, something we're going to talk about a little later, reports that typically receive about 1,000 inquiries a year regarding body donation after death. That's, in fact, gone up 15% since the beginning of the recession in 2008. You know, and likewise, the Anatomy Gifts Registry, which is a nonprofit that supplies tissue for medical research, reports they've seen calls inquiring about donation increase from 150 to as many as 400 calls per month. In fact, the EVP, Executive Vice President of the Anatomy Gift Registry, told Scientific American people are turning to this option because of the high cost of funerals. Oh, my God. Well, the tough times are these. And I think, I mean, I do have to give them credit, though. It's a pretty creative way to get out of a pricey funeral. I mean, do you agree with that? Would you jump on board that gravy train? (laughs) I do think that it is, you know, depending on someone's philosophy about donating their body to science and how they want to basically end their years on this planet. (laughs) And Um, for their family, too. Yeah, yeah, I think it's an interesting alternative. I'm not sure. It's a little bit of a sad statement about the economy today as to why they're doing it. But I guess it's capitalism at its finest. (laughs) At its very finest. (laughs) All right. Why don't we shift gears to talk about some really big news for Alzheimer's research. We have in the line with us Mr. Robert Eggy, Vice President of Public Policy and Advocacy at the Alzheimer's Association, to talk about the National Alzheimer's Project Act, just signed by President Obama. Now, the act comes out of three and a half years of hard work by the Alzheimer's Association and the Alzheimer's Study Group, which was created to evaluate the government's current efforts to combat Alzheimer's. We're thrilled to have Robert Eggy here to talk to us about what this legislation means for Alzheimer's research. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to have you with us. Now, first, Mr. Eggy, give us some numbers on Alzheimer's. How many people are getting diagnosed and living with this disease these days? Give us a scope of the disease burden. Yes. Well, we estimate that 5.3 million Americans have Alzheimer's uh, today and that this number is set to increase dramatically in the coming years in step with the aging of our population. So by mid-century, this total could be as much as 16 million Americans. 16 million Americans. That's right. Wow. Is that an exponential increase? Is that uh... Well, it sure appears that way. I mean, it, as, you, uh, as you know, Alzheimer's is not a communicable disease. But in terms of the slope of its increase, um, it sure has some of those characteristics in terms of how quickly it's developing. And, of course, that's not due to anything like a contagious element. It's due to the fact that our population, like many around the globe, are, age, are ra- rapidly aging, and so in lockstep, um, Alzheimer's is set to increase. 
Well, I also think it seems to be a little bit about improved diagnosis, wouldn't you say? And uh, our listening audience of physicians' ability to start to really understand the disease and diagnose it earlier and count the numbers. And... That's right. You know, diagnosis has been um, a challenge. We There are some studies, for instance, that that show that less than half of cases historically have been diagnosed and noted in a medical record. And this is something where I think we're making, as you alluded to, great progress. And it's something, for instance, in the Healthcare Reform Act where there was a provision now in the Medicare annual wellness visit to include the detection of cognitive impairment for the first time as part of this annual visit. And so we think that there's every likelihood that diagnosis will increase more and more um, to detect and note these cases. Well, I think that gives us a good scope of the disease, but we want to get right to the meat of the matter. Right. Let's talk about the National Alzheimer's Project Act. What's been your association's involvement here? We have been pushing for the enactment of the National Alzheimer's Project Act uh, for some time. It's really been our big emphasis with Congress in this last session of the last two years. And the reason we have prioritized this bill is because one of the fundamental facts about Alzheimer's um, is the fact that, to date, we've had a somewhat of a reactive strategy to dealing with this crisis. We haven't been proactive about articulating exactly what we need to do from a government's perspective and how we're going to do it. So what this legislation does for the first time, as we've done successfully with some other conditions, is to call for the federal government to have a unified statement about what we're trying to achieve to get ahead of this crisis and how we're going to do it. And then every year to report on our success against those objectives. It kind of reminds me a little bit of declaring war on cancer in a legislative form. Is this legislation essentially amounting to declaring war on Alzheimer's? You know, I think it ought to be seen that way. And that's one aspect of it that's encouraging uh, that this is the federal government saying on a unanimous vote in both the House and the Senate and the signature of the president that this is something that we have got to get ahead of as a country and as a federal government. So I think a, a war on Alzheimer's is, is not a bad way to put it. Um, it's also helpful in some other ways. We know that just like the war on cancer, this is going to take a lot of commitment. It's going to take some time uh, to get to where we need to go. But this is a great start along that path. If I were to follow the sort of war analogy or metaphor, if you will, you need soldiers fighting the war. And I think of our audience of physicians as really on the front line of this battle. Can you tell us a little bit about what they can do, what the provisions and goals of the act um, are all about, and how our listeners can actually really engage? Uh, That's a great question. I appreciate it. Uh, There's several things that jump to mind. Well, the first is the fact that, as your your listeners know, um, there are things that can be done today. A great example of that, even before the uh, National Alzheimer's Project Act provisions would kick in with implementation down the road. An example of that is something that we're doing with the physician community right now called Trial Match, which was just started this last year. And it's a way for physicians and other healthcare professionals as they come across those who are struggling with cognitive impairment and want to know how they can get involved in clinical trials, develop the therapies we need and other interventions, uh, to sign up and get matched with appropriate trials. And so that's something that's available today. It's been increasing rapidly, and it's, it's something tangible that makes a big difference. Um, and they can, people who want to find out more about that can go to our website at alz.org backslash trial match. But beyond those kinds of things that we can do immediately, um, what I think our policymakers need to, need to hear from uh, physicians and others about what is needed. So I often hear, as I go around the country and talk to physicians groups and other healthcare professionals, 
about what their struggles are, why it is so difficult under Medicare today to provide the kinds of support and services they know are meaningful and needed. And that's the kind of thing that we want to address in this, in this strategy that the federal government is putting together. And so as a practical matter, if, if people want to go to, let's just want to go to ALZ.org and uh, sign up for updates on NAPA, they will find out about ways that they can provide input into this legislation to help shape the, shape the thinking of policymakers on what needs to be done. I think that's a perfect send-off. Robert, I wish we had 10 more minutes to talk to you about this because this is a really great topic and it sounds like you guys have made extraordinary headway into the area of advancing Alzheimer's research and legislation. But Mr. Eggie, um, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. It was a pleasure. Robert Eggie is the VP of Public Policy and Advocacy at the Alzheimer's Association. Fantastic. Uh, I do guest. think, Matt, that I hope the physicians out there do check out the NAPA Act and the Alzheimer's Association website. I, I have some personal family experience with this and very informative, very helpful. And a lot of our listeners would identify with you on that as well, me included. All right, why don't we shift gears here on January 12th. Haiti passed the one-year mark after the massive earthquake devastated an already suffering country and set the stage for a health crisis that continues today. Neurologist and ReachMD host Dr. Anthony Alessi has made five trips to Haiti during the last year. He was there on the 12th for the one-year anniversary. I spoke to him that day on his cell phone. We have that interview on tape, and we're going to share it with you now. Dr. Alessi, tell us about the current situation in Haiti from your perspective on the ground. Well, it's interesting because, as you know, Matt, I've been coming here since the earthquake. Uh, my first trip to Port-au-Prince was two weeks after the earthquake, last January 12th. And since then, I've made, uh, this is my fifth trip here. So I've gotten an interesting perspective of being somewhat removed, but yet periodically being able to check up on the progress. And it's different from the standpoint that it depends on what perspective you take and how you look at Haiti. For example, I've been coming to work with Father Rick Frechette here at St. Damien's Hospital, which is a complex. It started as a pediatric-only hospital. It was the only free pediatric hospital here in Port-au-Prince. And at the time of the earthquake, obviously took in many adult traumatic patients or patients who suffered trauma. But I've been able to see over the course of the past year tremendous growth here. Every time I come back, I see that the donations people who have made to this NGO, every dollar has gone into the facility and it's been able to handle disasters. I guess the most telling thing is, as I look out now, I'm working at the cholera center set up for the cholera outbreak and what's really become a disaster. And instead of dealing in tents, which we have now, uh, Father's building a separate disaster center because there have been so many disasters when we think of it. So we should have a center that can be readily started up at the time of a disaster in terms of planning for the future. If there's now an adult hospital here called St. Luke's a Rehabilitation Hospital, he's been able to expand a vocational program here for people who want to start businesses. So from that standpoint, I see tremendous progress since the earthquake. From the standpoint of the city and the infrastructure, I see little to no progress from that standpoint. Although some of the rubble has been cleared, possibly some building going on. There were so many people last night. I got to see the tent city at City Soleil, which is really, I'd never seen it even before on my other trips. And it's amazing how many thousands and thousands of people are living in tents here in Port-au-Prince, though. As far as living conditions, does that include the staff yourself? Are you guys in the same basic conditions you were a year ago? 
our conditions really haven't changed in the sense that at the time of the earthquake, we were living in tents set up by the Italian civil defense, where there are six of us to a tent. If people want to get a flavor for it, it is really just like the television show MASH. There are six people to a tent, and there are several tents set up in the same style. There are communal latrines, outside latrines, separate for men and women, and outside showers, which is separate for men and women. And there's a communal eating area where we have Haitian staff cook one meal per day for us at 1 o'clock. So those have not changed in terms of our living arrangements here. But surprisingly, this trip was the first time I brought a group down. We have 10 volunteers from the William W. Backus Hospital where I work. There are six nurses and four paramedics who are here because they can start IVs fast, which is what we need to get control of patients who are coming in with cholera. And it's interesting to get their perspective that you know, this communal area works so well because we work with Italian physicians and nurses as well as German physicians and nurses. And it's really, everybody has worked together so well down here. It's amazing. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD XM160. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, sitting alongside Gary Epstein. This is a recording of an interview I did with Dr. Anthony Alessi by cell phone on the one-year anniversary of the earthquake in Haiti on January 12th. So we talk a lot about how the medical care efforts have shifted over the past year from trauma care and recovery to rehabilitation. How has your medical mission changed since coming there a year ago? It's changed dramatically in the sense that there are always different emergencies that seem to deal with. We dealt with the acute trauma, then followed by rehabilitation. At St. Damien's, we have another facility called Kai St. Germain, which is a rehabilitation center that has been here for years, primarily working with young children who have neurologic disabilities. Now, the Italian foundation called the Rava Foundation from Milan has funded a prosthetic center, and they've fit young people with prosthetics. We've also changed a lot now that we have an adult hospital. There are many stroke patients requiring rehab, so there's a rehab setting, and we're in that rehab mode and building mode, and then you get hit with cholera. My last two trips, the trip in November and this trip, have really centered around treating cholera, but by the same token, not leaving our eyes off the ball, which is that we need to make progress. So I'll spend a couple of days working at the Neuro Rehab Center, seeing patients in the morning. We're trying to get a program put together with the American Academy of Neurology, where American and Canadian neurologists will be able to come down here. One of the things here at St. Damien's is it's a very safe environment. I think everybody, you read a lot about what goes on in Port-au-Prince, and yet we're removed from that because although we're not removed geographically, we have walls, we have security, we never feel unsafe coming to work here. We're only 10 minutes from the airport. We have drivers who are reliable who pick us up, bring us to the airport. So we never feel unsafe. So it's a nice situation for older physicians like myself and younger physicians uh, to come out, experience the practice of medicine in the third world, and add that to you know, our armamentarian of how to approach patients and uh, an understanding of that. And that's an important point because you're a neurologist, and a year ago I asked you, when you were there right on site in the after- immediate aftermath, are you mainly managing neurological cases because of your specialty? You said no. I'm managing a lot of general medicine cases, a lot of trauma care, things that I didn't necessarily know I was going to be handling. And it sounds like you're doing the same thing here. You have the cholera epidemic sweeping the nation, and you're handling a lot of cases that you probably didn't expect or necessarily have the background to care for. I mean, can you talk about that? 
Well, when you come to the third world, you really can't have expectations. You can be called on to do anything at any time. Unfortunately, as physicians, typically we've been successful because we're fast learners. So just this morning, I had to treat two patients with cholera, but we did chest x-rays, and clearly they have caseating granulomas, and they have tuberculosis as well. So we had to divide them off into a separate area and start treating them for tuberculosis. I had to obtain the drugs and start treating them for tuberculosis. Not something I do very commonly. It's very common to be treating patients with malaria. So what it has done is really invigorated my career, and I think it does for many of the physicians who come down here and say, you know, this is why I went into medicine, was to take care of people. The other thing is you have very little bureaucracy here because you have to move so quickly. And I think that's what you learn pretty fast. You really value working with similar-minded people like the paramedics and nurses that have come down with me on this trip. So it's very interesting from that standpoint that it's more than neurology, yet the neurologic needs here are so great, especially from a pediatric neurology standpoint. There's so many children born premature. So many have chronicterous and chronic seizures and various forms of epilepsy that there is a neurologic need. Let's talk a bit about the major clinical and public health priorities. Obviously, infectious disease is top of mind right now. You've clearly been witness to the cholera epidemic that's sweeping the nation. And it sounds to me like you guys are going to do what you can. Everyone that is providing care and supportive care will do what they can. But it sounds like controlling cholera is ultimately going to come down to separating drinking water from sewage. Now, do you see that happening anytime soon over there? Hopefully we're getting to that direction. What we did on our last trip, most of the cholera the last time I was here was on the outskirts and the surrounding villages. So a lot had to do with going out, not only identifying patients and treating them, but educating the other people in the village on how to purify the water and make sure it was clean by boiling it and where they shouldn't be taking water from. But it's hard because the only water supply they have, the Arbonite River, was infected. So a lot of this from a public health standpoint has to do with education as well as solving the water problem. But let's face it, Haiti's had a malaria problem because it doesn't have good sewerage for so many years. And it's the only Caribbean country that has an endemic malaria problem. Yeah, it's interesting. A number of ID specialists, I remember a year ago, they predicted that typhoid would be the single greatest threat in the immediate aftermath of the disaster. Do you think anyone saw this cholera epidemic coming almost one year later? Well, I think that we have to look at the source of it. The New England Journal of Medicine published an interesting article trying to identify the source, and it's clearly not from the Caribbean or South America. It more likely came from the Near East or Africa. So, you know, this is something we brought to them in our efforts to try and solve the problem here. The developing countries have now brought them cholera. I don't think infectious disease experts could have expected that. So it was probably poor sanitation on the part of health workers or actually outside rescue workers that caused this problem because it was never, cholera was never endemic to Haiti. Yeah, and speaking of the health workers, I mean, the CDC is reporting that on the plus side, public health systems are in much better shape now than they were one year ago and even before the disaster. Now, have you seen any evidence of that while you're out there? There's a lot more support. There's a lot more concentration of effort. There's a lot more notice. I mean, thanks to you and thanks to so many people in the press, more people are paying attention to Haiti. And with that come gifted people. I meet so many young people who have come down here to work and give part of their lives. With that, we all bring our own area of expertise. Yeah, I mean, I hear about more rapid diagnostic tests. I hear about better surveillance training, a solid tracking system back in place for patients with chronic diseases such as AIDS and TB. 
And I wonder how that's actually playing out on the ground level, though, because we hear it from the top institutions from a distant standpoint, but I don't really know what's happening on the ground level. It's a great point. What's happened on the ground level is we've taken people who have little medical expertise and brought them up to speed. The Haitian people in the village, we've educated them on how to educate others, how to identify things, how to go out and start IVs quickly, how to identify cholera in this situation. So we've created this ground-level support for Haiti, and I think that's where it's being done. I think the education of Haitian citizens who may not have a medical background but have the skills that we can use to train people. And speaking of grounds, I mean, how are, literally, how are the roads doing out there? I hear that's one of the most important infrastructure rebuilding efforts out there. How's that doing? Still poor. The roads are still very poor. And security, hospitals, I mean, all these efforts to restore Haiti, are these still far behind expectations? It depends on what your expectations were. If you had high expectations, we're far behind. I think that they've made a big step politically. I think that every day that that's calmed down. The Haitian people have a wonderful spirit, and that's what helps to work with them. So I think that we're doing okay in that regard. Are we making progress? Yes. Is it as fast as we would like? No. It can never be fast enough. But I think progress is being made. And again, I judge that based on you know, my experience here at St. Damien's and my travels through Port-au-Prince. So what about for those of us who can potentially contribute over here one year later? What are your teams and the Haitian people's greatest needs right now? How can our listeners be of service? Well, I have to say, as much as it's glib, you know, financial support is so huge. It doesn't have to be in the form of a handout. I mean, developing programs, you know, that are health-related like they do here. The one thing I love about coming here is that I know that every dollar I donate is spent on the health needs of the Haitian people. It's not going to some bureaucracy. There aren't a lot of administrators involved in this. And I think that by finding a charity, primarily a non-governmental organization, and developing a relationship with that charity is so important now because you never know when you're being deceived. So developing that relationship doesn't necessarily mean coming here and volunteering, but having an understanding and being able to give support, for example, we're trying to get an electronic health record going here. And I think that's absolutely crucial. So, you know, what help we can get technologically is huge. We've heard that the Interim Haiti Recovery Commission, or IHRC, has been doing a very good job of managing the influx of aid internally among the Haitians. So you think that financial contributions are not getting stowed away and lost in bureaucratic process? You think it's actually doing very good service out there? Well, when they come to a smaller NGO, when they go to large organizations, uh, everybody loves to help UNICEF, and these monies are being banked so that then it can be decided what to do on a global aspect. Right now, the money is needed for rice. You need to feed people. You need to give them good sanitation. You need to give them housing, and you'll have their attention. And that's what Father Rick Frechette does here. And the best way to donate is by going to a website called CompassionWeavers.com. And I can assure you that every penny that goes there comes and directly helps the health efforts of the Haitian people. Excellent. All right, one last question for you, Dr. Alessi. After everything they've been through so far, do you think the Haitian people should be optimistic in the rehabilitation efforts to come? I think by nature, the Haitian people are optimistic. They never give up. Their stick-to-itiveness is amazing. A perfect example is a young man who I've had the pleasure of knowing here. He was two years old at the time of the earthquake when he lost his right arm at the shoulder and his left arm below the elbow. And I got to be here when he got his first prosthesis. And here was a young man who was age two who couldn't do anything and now had this 
very, very rudimentary prosthesis. And he was able to put this smile on his face and immediately start playing with his friends. It's like, I'm back. I'm recovering. On my next visit, unfortunately, the prosthesis was lost. His mother became ill and couldn't feed him. And he came to our clinic malnourished and covered in scabies. But we were able to help him out and get things cleared up. I checked on him the other day, and now he's given up on the prosthesis because it gets lost and it breaks. So he's been able to start feeding himself by just flexing his left elbow, and he's perfectly content with that. I think that describes the Haitian people and the situation here. It's two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. I have no doubt that this young man, Michael's spirit, is going to make him survive in this environment. And I think he is very reflective of the Haitian people. Well, Dr. Leslie, that's a great story. It's a great analogy. I think our listeners will resonate with that. And we wish you the best of luck out there. Good luck. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. That was Dr. Anthony Alessi, recorded on January 12th, one year after the devastating earthquake in Haiti. This marked Dr. Alessi's fifth trip to Haiti to provide medical and humanitarian aid since the earthquake. We'll be sure to follow up with him and others out there again soon. All right, but before we go, from the trivial news, you might just use file. Yes, calling all caffeine addicts. Believe it or not, Dr. Matt, Starbucks has added an entirely new size to their beverage lineup. It's called the Trenta. Tell me more. <laughs> Trenta apparently means 30 in Italian. I know we don't have Dr. Greenberg here with all of his uh, <laughs> 16 international languages. languages. But in this case, it's actually 31 ounces of liquid breakfast. Lunch and dinner. <laughs> Lunch and dinner. It's actually the largest sized drink ever probably on the continent. <laughs> Right now, they're pushing it in cold drinks like iced lattes and whatnot. It's in beta testing in 14 states, but I would say to tired docs out there who are into their caffeine that you can expect to see it by May 1st. What doc isn't? But a reminder, on behalf of GI docs everywhere, if you're thinking of chugging down a Trenta latte before rounds, just remember that the stomach capacity of an adult is about 30 ounces sans gastric banding, and hopefully not too many of us have experienced that. While the Trenta gives you 31 ounces, but... You know, the plus side at least is half filled with ice for now, and we all know that the hot trend is coming. There's really no avoiding it. We're all going to be on top of that, so why fight it? Yeah. Right? <laughs> and with that, it is time to wrap up this edition of Second Opinion Live. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz alongside Gary Epstein. Gary, on behalf of Michael and myself and the entire staff of ReachMD, Thanks for joining us today, and welcome to the club. It's a pleasure. It's great to be here. I hope Dr. Greenberg has a long vacation, and I can do it again soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Till next time, everybody. 